0: That was the bottom line for me. I I play the bass for fun, really. It's about joy, and you're not afraid to blow it. Because there are times when you make a really bad mistake. (laughs) You just do it, you know, and that's part of learning. Hello
1: and welcome, everybody. My name is Will Chernoff, and you're listening to the Rhythm Changes podcast, a home for creative, improvising, local music people. This show is an ongoing, open-ended series of conversations with folks who make their community fun and prosperous. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to follow this feed wherever you get your podcasts, and check out our website, rhythmchanges.ca. Our guest today is a generous soul whose career has been in education, but he's been learning to improvise musically since I met him at the 2014 Douglas College Summer Jazz Intensive, and he is now an improvising jazz double bassist who currently plays in the group Hamilton Street Swing. You can find him online by visiting bayless.ca jonathan, and here in the physical world, He is my neighbor in New West and the first in-studio, in-person guest on this show. So please welcome my neighbor, Jonathan Bayliss.
0: Thanks, Will. (laughs) That was very kind of you. (laughs) Well, It's great to be with you.
1: I appreciate you coming to my music room and seeing it for the first time. I've not seen your music room, whether it's a living room or something else. What does your music room look like?
0: It's uh, just a tiny bit larger than this just to the right of my front door. It's got a fireplace, got a window looking southeast, got my base and computer and the couch, and uh, it's pretty comfortable. I was
1: lucky enough to walk around the neighborhood with you on a nice day. This isn't a very nice day, I wouldn't say. But I got to hear a little bit about your base, and your base sounds pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I was blessed to come across an 1890 Tyrolean flatback bass. I was looking at Rick Reynolds' basses, and uh, he played quite a number of them, and they were beautiful and wonderful, And uh, but this one stood out. It was just uh, something... I hadn't heard a bass that sounded so good as this one. So I kept coming back to it, and uh, one day I was able to to purchase it. And so I've got this bass. Um, when you see it, it's, um, you can see that it has been repaired numerous times. The wood is glued back together again. So it's got all kinds of character on the face of it. But I just love the sound of it. But that's not your first one, right? No, I had another bass before that. It was a 1960 Hofner, German Hoffner bass. That was a good bass. It was a specially hearty bass. It was a laminate, you know, it's basically a plywood um, German bass. Good for rough and tumble in the car and out of the car and out gigging. Had it for years. I love that you say
1: rough and tumble because I have... Quite a definition about that. We're talking, of course, about upright basses, and mine is definitely one that's had its rough-and-tumble times. It's also a plywood instrument. It's a Samuel Shen. It's a student kind of bass. And my version of rough-and-tumble was for like seven or eight years, I took it around on transit everywhere. So I definitely put it through a lot, and I put its case through a lot. And the the case that I did all that with is still in my closet here, but uh, this instrument hasn't left my house in quite a while.
0: Yeah, well, it, I'm quite a bit more careful with this uh, 130-year-old instrument. No kidding. I, I, uh, <laughs> and I never, ever leave it. Well, if I leave it in the car, I my eyes are on the car. <laughs> Absolutely. I did
1: ask another bass player in Vancouver how they would describe you from the time that, that you interacted with her. And she said... He was a delight to work with. Hardworking, committed, enthusiastic, and diligent. And that's from Jody Prosnick.
0: Oh well, (laughs) Jody, thank you, Jody. That's very complimentary. Was my inspiration to start playing the bass. Actually, she was doing. She was teaching at a Douglas College summer jazz intensive, and I I was on faculty there teaching English language. And during my lunch break, I was sitting in the cafeteria. And she and her band were, uh, were playing. I said, you know, that is my instrument, and that is my teacher. Yeah, <laughs> all right. So I, I got a hold of her and uh, eventually studied with her. I studied with Darren Radke for uh, quite a number of years, actually. And then, then I got to study with Jody and, and then Renee Worst most uh, recently.
1: Yeah, okay. So you've had three upright bass teachers who are all jazz musicians. Yes, yeah. yes. Nice. I've had, I've also had three. We have two of them in common, Jody and Darren. I guess I never really took private lessons with Jody, actually, so I can't really say that. But she was my original inspiration to play as well, because I was at New Westminster Secondary School, and Kelly Prosnick was my band teacher. And so Jody and Jesse K Hill and Tilden Webb were some of the first people that she brought in. And Steve Caldestad, of course, yes. to talk about jazz with us and introduce us to jazz. And I mean, I was already playing bass at the time, but that's when I started really getting into the upright was after Jody came for the first time. And then I started following Jody and Jesse, especially around town. So that's how I got into it. Thanks to her as well.
0: Yeah. She, she radiates joy and she was having so much fun and smiling from ear to ear. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take that instrument up. Yeah. And then
1: Darren, I used to go down the hill here in new West to get Lessons with him. I can't remember for exactly how long, maybe about a year, while I was at the high school. And he, he really helped me understand harmony and my instrument quite a lot. And he helped me get really nice and prepared for going to Capilano University, where I ended up going for one year. And during that year, I had my third bass instructor, who was Andre Lachance. And I haven't had one since. So I'm still figuring out how to get that back into my life.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it makes a big difference to have a good teacher. Was there anything that you understood
1: from being a career teacher yourself even though it wasn't in music that helped you get on board when you were starting to take music lessons?
0: Absolutely. My training in education was adult ed as well as linguistics and language. That's ed. perfect then. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yes, a teacher, a skilled educator can enhance their own learning by working collaboratively with their teacher it made a big difference for me
1: yeah adult ed seems especially appropriate because not because all music students are adults because obviously they're not but like you're coming to it as an aside or after you've already learned a lot of other things and you've done a lot of other primary, secondary, post-secondary education. You're you're doing music in parallel to that sometimes. So that's kind of a similar feeling as when you're an adult and you're trying to learn a language or a musical instrument. Is that is that kind of true? I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's true for sure. Breaking the whole field down into individual skills and knowing how much you can do in an hour, how much you can communicate in an hour, and how much you can expect a student to master in a week before the next lesson comes all that timing stuff and sequencing and all that is uh it's really useful i think now of that time in 2014 at the
1: douglas camp when you show up there having already being a figure on the douglas campus which seems like that's where you heard about it right
0: well yeah yeah i did and then i had some interactions when jody and her band came and played I learned about the program and I started talking to the faculty about it. Yeah. I'm interested
1: to know like what you thought of the teenagers like me who were there.
0: It was a pleasure to be one of, I think... My recollection is that there were about three of us that were participants that were over 19 years old. <laughs> and some of us were quite a ways over 19 years old. <laughs> um, like in our 50s, that was me. Yeah. And there were some very bright kids, and most of them played way better than I did. Some of them were, were less patient with me. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Um, Well, I didn't blame them, really. I mean, they'd get on stage and they expect certain things. You know, you know certain things. And uh, some of those I knew and others I came to learn about.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure where I fit in on that spectrum. So hopefully I wasn't that (laughs) that bad.
0: There was a little boy who kept putting his electric bass in the wrong place and it would fall off the chair. (laughs) So I felt like I kind of had to parent him a little bit. Oh, wow. But I was already a very experienced parent, so.
1: And what about you? Said there were three of you who were truly there as adult learners, right? Yeah, well yeah. beyond
0: uh, nineteen years
1: old. Yeah, and you guys stuck together, right? You formed a little subgroup. Yeah, right we the kind
0: of. Yeah, we sort of had lunch together, and that sort of thing. Yeah.
1: yeah. If you're somebody who wants to do something like learning to improvise musically, but anything like that that would you'd really benefit from getting in there and doing some kind of intensive or workshop or series like that. If you're a lifelong learner and you're going into an environment like that, that can be intimidating for a lot of people. What would you say to them about what should you do or what should you keep in mind right away so that you don't feel intimidated?
0: Go there for fun. That was the bottom line for me. I, I play the bass for fun, really. Um, yeah. It's about joy. And um, consider it low-risk, a low-risk environment. It's sometimes when you get on stage and there's a couple hundred people sitting there or whatever it was, 50 to 100 people, you can get yourself into a space where, uh, where it's intimidating. But if you're there just for fun. And you're not afraid to blow it.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can never be afraid to. Because I've, I've there me. are
0: times when you make a really bad mistake. Yeah. <laughs> you just do it, you know, and that's part of learning. Totally.
1: Yeah, I've had many moments like that. I've blown it on stage in front of hundreds of people before, yeah. seriously. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it was my fault and sometimes less so. But I mean, you still get the same feeling.
0: That's right. And you have to go on and say, you know, I don't care. I'm just going to have fun and I'm going to do the best I can. And that's all I can be expected to do. Yeah. And this is about learning Mm -hmm. it's not about being paid a lot of money to perform yeah and it
1: seems like it's about expectation management if you want to come in there and not be afraid so it's like if you have expectations of what you need to get out of it and like by the time i'm finished this workshop series i need to be x or i need to have done y like that seems to be where that anxiety would come from
0: yes yes i didn't come in uh i was fairly early on in my uh by my bass playing
1: yeah and i guess on my end i didn't come in with a lot of expectations either because it was just part of this like continuum of a whole bunch of things like that that i was doing so there wasn't like a whole bunch of pressure on this one thing so if you're really coming in and you're starting a new hobby and you're doing something like that maybe i would sum it up as like one just in general keep your expectations low of what you're going to get out of this one thing and if you do that's a bonus also Don't wait too long to do it, maybe. Like, if you had the bass in your music room at home for a couple years, and then you were going to go and do the Douglas Camp, I would think that would be more intimidating, because it might raise your expectations. You might be like, oh, I've been playing for two years, and this is one of the first times I'm really going to be under the spotlight. Is there anything to that?
0: I'm just trying to... Remember the uh, the where I was? Uh, what, yeah, what, yeah, what I'd done prior to I, I've been playing with the uh, Douglas College dos Band.
1: Oh yeah, I've played in bands like that. It wasn't the Douglas one, but I played in the New Westminster Community and District Band.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was my first experience playing in a, in a big band and being the bassist when there's twenty other players. And you know, I I'd learned a lot from that already, but I wanted to meet people and start my own combos and that sort of thing. And I'd had the bass for a while and I had lessons for a while. But uh, improv was, well, in the sense of soloing improv. I mean, I I knew how to improvise bass lines. Had to do that from the very beginning. But learning to to, to play a solo, I, I really didn't have much of a clue about that when I started that program. James Dandifer was teaching and uh, he taught the theory Part of it, and I remember asking him, James, how do you get started on a solo? <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? I, I said, you know, do, just play the root. Uh, he said, play a seventh. <laughs> 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 I said, okay, and we'll just take it from there.
1: Okay, yeah, I mean, just get started somewhere. Right? Yeah, it's a good lesson. It's it's a good lesson for learning anything. You yeah, know? yeah, get started somewhere. I started by just going all over the place, like the intimidating factor for me was I didn't feel like I was very well trained. Like I was getting a lot of learning from the people who were playing jazz in the community. But like in terms of directly studying with people and like working on my technique, like I wasn't really doing a lot of that. Certainly not relative to how much I was trying to go out there and play gigs and improvise while I was doing the gigs and stuff. Like I was just ready to go out and try things and I was pretty raw you know and so I didn't really kind of hunker down and examine how I was physically doing on the instrument for the first time until university and I actually like went to go see a chiropractor the summer before I went to university because I was playing enough at that point that I was like straining my neck and and my alignment wasn't good because of my posture and so like that was the first time that I ever thought about it really and then that plus having regular lessons the most that i ever did at that point that's when i finally squared the circle and got over to the other side i was like trying to learn to improvise and be free and wild and play gigs and stuff but i needed to catch up on the fundamentals too
0: and that was very much my experience at the uh, douglas college summer jazz intensive I had just done a week or perhaps two weeks at the VSO School of Music also, their jazz workshop. That was my summer to, to sort of break out, get yeah. to know people, form groups and that sort of thing. The other thing I remember
1: as one final note on the 2014 camp was that I'll always remember that particular week or two. I think it was one, was it one week or two? I can't remember. One. Yeah, okay. So it was just that one week. That one week... That was when I started drinking coffee for the first time every day (laughs) because I was like I was performing full time for the first time that year because I had just dropped out of cap. So I was always out and I was always out late and I was going around places. You know, that was the only time I had to wake up early to do anything like all year. And so that I was doing that plus waking up early. And so I started drinking coffee, even though up until that point I'd never had before.
0: So it was a life changing experience yes, for abso- you. Absolutely life changing. The, the wonderful drug, uh, caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: okay. I, the other thing that is on my mind as I've gotten to know you over the last month or two was you hosted a concert where you performed out of your front lawn for yes. the people on our street, Hamilton Street. Mm-hmm. I was so lucky to come and hear that. I didn't even want to go that night because I had just gotten my second vaccine. Two days before, and I was really not feeling very good. Right. And I credit my friend Steve Clements and his son Will Clements, who's been on the podcast recently, for being there. And, you know, I was considering going there for like maybe five. I was like, oh, I'm gonna go for five minutes, and I'm I'm just not gonna feel great. And so I'm gonna pack it in after that. But when I saw that they were there and they were having fun, and you know, there were like 50 odd people there having fun. When I saw what it was, I was like I'm so happy I'm here. I'm pumped. I'm sticking around for the whole thing.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah, that was a great day to to, uh, sort of reconnect with you. I'm curious how you decided to do that. At the very beginning of the pandemic, March 2020, we didn't know where it was all going. We heard of people that were doing music from the front of their houses just to kind of cheer people up and to be neighborly and to kind of raise people's spirits in the face of this horrible thing that was starting to happen. And I thought, well, I could do that because I have a band that practices here at my house, and we just play out out front one night, and it was something like March or April of 2020 when we decided we'd do that, and the, the band was in, we thought, yeah, we're going to do this, and it will work, and they'll, they'll, they'll socially distance uh, in the boulevards, so we didn't block the street or anything. So we set a date and I put it on Facebook and I put it on the uh, next door and um, I started getting responses saying, it's become too dangerous to do that. You can't draw a crowd. No professional musician will get out there and do that. No, we're all holding back because uh, you can't draw a crowd. Actually, the parents of some of the other players who are younger than me were contacting me and said, don't do it. And so, but I'd kind of promised people on the Neighborhood blog that I would do this. So I said, I can't do this now. The pandemic has gotten too bad. It would not be safe. So I'll do it as soon as it becomes safe again. That was, what, July 27th, 2021. There you go. It was clearly safe. You could you could draw a crowd outdoors it was legal it followed the provincial guidelines so we we set our date and we hired a drummer to join our group and uh and we played it was great we played two sets and people came it was it was wonderful
1: yeah
0: it was really fun it was so fun that the band wanted to do it again but uh then there were people traveling and so on now the weather's cold and next summer we'll do it again
1: yeah there's a window of time for us to do that for sure right <laughs> And you hit it, you hit it dead on. Because I was thinking, like, why don't, why doesn't this happen more often? And yeah, there is like mundane reasons why, like either you are not going to have neighbors who are on board, and like the first time you try it, it's not going to work out, or uh, it's just weather, like you are just only going to be able to do it for a window of time. It has
0: to be beautiful. I mean, it can't be raining, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I definitely left that wishing that it happened more often and wondering
0: how it could happen to some extent. People came, people danced. It was nice. We will do it again.
1: Yeah. And what else did you get the chance to do like in July and August with your band?
0: Well, out of that came a couple more gigs. We were hired for a big festival that was held in Tipperary Park nice next to City Hall. It was called, I think, Recover New Westminster. It was oh, all, yeah. all the organizations and nonprofits that worked to help people with um, recovering from alcohol and substance abuse and that sort of thing. And... They had bands playing all day long, and we—I uh, think we were the first one. We we, we start that out. We started that afternoon out. Yeah, it was nice outdoors, under up up on a big stage there.
1: And who did you have with you that day? Whether it was your regular bandmates it was a, or others,
0: we played as a trio. Yeah, yeah. we are a trumpet, piano, bass. Yeah, yeah, it's a good lineup. Let's yeah,
1: trumpet, piano, bass, drums. That's the lineup that I used for my first album, and that's what I started playing with from a young age. Yeah, because so I was inspired by Brad Turner Quartet.
0: Ah, oh, right. Yeah,
1: right. Let's copied that lineup. So, who are the members of your band?
0: Michael Radney is our vocalist and trumpeter, and Strauss Whiteside is our piano player.
1: Mm-hmm. And then you were with Tyler Murray. He came and played drums with you for that outdoor gig that I was at.
0: Yes, we we hired Tyler. I've played with him n- numerous times, and uh, he was available, and we were thankful. And he had a good time. Yeah,
1: and there were some other young folks there too, like Will Clements and I, and there's another music student there, so we were hanging out with. And like you said, there were people dancing. There were families dancing together, and yeah, it was a, it was a great mix of people that you brought together.
0: Caden Gordon showed up with his trumpet. Yes, that's right. Yes, forgot about that. So he came and he s- sat in with us a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I've played with Caden a lot. We used to be in a band together. Okay.
1: Yeah, you mentioned when we were having our walk the other week about your previous band. Tell me more about that.
0: Benny and the Good Men uh was uh with some of the same people. Strauss on on the piano, uh Caden Gordon on trumpet. Ben McRae was the yeah, band leader. Nice. Um on his mostly clarinet but sometimes saxophone. And I, I was the bassist. And we we gigged a lot, yeah.
1: I walk by your house twice a day, five days a week, pretty much, you know? I mean, all I know, <laughs> other than your cat, who I know, yes, is that sometimes I've heard music coming from your household. But, you know, it's a blur, so I'm not exactly sure why or for what occasion. So what music happens in your house?
0: The band practice is there. Okay, yeah. It depends. Sometimes it's every second week. Other times it's every Tuesday. Tuesday nights. Oh, wow. It's band night. The guys are pretty busy now. They're starting to be high school teachers. And uh, so uh, sometimes everybody in my family is a musician. And I was sort of the the last one to, to actually get on stage. My wife, Lorraine, taught piano for. Goodness knows, many decades, and there was a time when she was home with the young kids, and uh, I went and taught in language school in the day. And uh, then when I came back, I take care of the kids, and she taught uh, the the uh, children in the neighborhood piano lessons, Royal Conservatory. Well, I looked after the kids. That's oh, nice. kind of yeah. So my job was was in the language institute, and her uh, her job was uh, in the living room. That was that was her music studio. Both of our daughters uh, are violinists and uh they they play violin there for for many years. Uh, occasionally they'll bring their their violins and we'll do we'll play together. And my son Andrew is a uh, guitarist. My wife Lorraine is not that fond of jazz and I'm not that skilled at classical. So we don't play together that much, but the genre that brings us together as a whole family is Celtic music. I love that
1: because I've had my own time with Celtic music. I was so happy to hear yeah. that. that you oh, did d- maybe that. I mentioned that and before. And I was so happy to hear it. We've yeah.
0: actually gone out and performed once or twice as a family band playing Celtic music. I like to do more of that. The Girls can play classical, but they can also fiddle. Both of my daughters spent years of their lives in Nova Scotia, each of them doing graduate degrees at Dalhousie. During those years, when one or both of them were there, we would be there every summer. And we went to folk festivals. That's where we heard Celtic music.
1: Nice, that's also where I've heard it because I yeah. started a folk band and I played at some of those folk festivals and I would try and run around the stages and see some different people on the days we were there And you know we would not like tour for long periods of time but we'd tour every weekend kind of thing and we'd go to a festival and be there for one or two nights and yeah I thought that was really cool. Halifax was the first place that I ever toured for any reason though musically. It was the first place outside of the Lower Mainland that I ever went to on tour because we went there with north shore celtic ensemble for a summer trip with their program with like the teenage performing group we started in halifax and we traveled by coach around quite a bit like we went from halifax up to and around cape breton and then to pei and then on over confederation bridge and then going as far as montreal through new brunswick i think it was like two weeks total but first night was halifax in july and i Absolutely loved it. I thought Halifax was like super New West in a lot of ways, you know, because it slopes down to the water. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, there's some similarities, the East and the West. Yeah. That's one other place that I've
1: considered living. I mean, I'm really happy to be in New West, but I always wondered if I would go there for some reason.
0: Yeah. Both of my daughters lived there for years. Finally, my middle daughter, uh, Larissa, came back after quite a number of years there Very, very tired of the intensity of the winters. Yeah. Yeah, we would get a bit of snow here, but they really got a lot of snow there. And the storms were blinding, and they'd be sort of hunkered down for days. And uh, that got to be, you know, for a West Coast person, (laughs) Uh, tiresome. I've never been there in the winter. (laughs) No, no, neither have I. (laughs) Okay. I go there in the summer, and
1: it's beautiful. Okay, so... If my mom is listening right now, mom, you got to know that this is for real. Those winters are bad. You wouldn't do well there. Confirmed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a lovely place. Cape Breton is, yeah, the Cape Breton music and the fiddlers.
1: So it's kind of downstream of Scottish music.
0: Yeah. Yes. Lunenburg and the folk festival in Lunenburg. We've been there a few times. I've never been there. That was one place that,
1: we were planning to go to with early spirit in the summer of 2020. So we didn't end up going there. We had to cancel everything.
0: Well, yeah, that's when we lost all our gigs as well. Summer, summer 2020.
1: You're a contemporary of my parents
0: and I'm most
1: familiar with my mom's kind of musical reference points. Mm -hmm. I guess if I would describe them, it would be like kind of folk singer songwriter. 70s would be like the main bag. But of course there was all the other stuff that's happened in the, years since then so like before you went on this learning to improvise journey like where did music fit into your life what did you listen to at different stages
0: good question well i first learned to read music in the trouble clef because that's where my voice was as a little boy in the church choir nice and there was always a piano at home so i knew my way around i never really m- learned to play the piano but i knew where all the notes were so the church choir. Then at age nine, I took up the violin and I played oh, nice. in the school orchestra until the end of grade 12. Never got to be that great, but I did play second and third violin in the orchestra. Nice. First. So that was nine years of violin. When I hit 14, everybody played the guitar and did what we called nanny. That's, uh, that's a whole bunch of friends all get together in the house, and then there are six or seven guitars and whatever else okay. people play, and we sang, you know? We sang Blowing in the Wind and stuff. So you sang folk songs. <laughs> folk from, songs.
1: Like, like 60s songs. Yeah,
0: and this is the 60s. I was in high school in the 60s. Yeah. And uh, we just had a great time, and we learned from each other. I, I never had any lessons. Uh, friends sh- showed me how to play guitar, and I got a guitar, and... You know, we strummed and we sang. That's similar to what my mom did. My mom did it in the early 70s. She'd do, growing up Catholic,
1: she'd do like folk masses. A little bit different because it was a couple yeah. of years later and this the environment is a little bit different. Yeah. But yeah, they would sing together and play guitars together.
0: Yeah, it was so much fun. And of course, rock music was taking off. And the Beatles, uh, I think, came, their album was released when I was 13 years old. I think. That was
1: like the big famous Ed Sullivan moment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: So we listened to that and we tried to learn their songs and it was just a lot of musical fun during high school. So I played violin in the orchestra and guitar out with my friends.
1: And then what happened next? Like once you got out of that formation phase, like from then on when you were, when you were growing up and then where was music in your life? Either as a listener or play, playing, like it could be just listening and being well, a fan as well. during
0: my undergrad years in, uh, in Sonoma County, the sort of north of the San Francisco Bay, the, the wine country up there, that's where I went to, to my in first so college. Um, I lived with other musicians, and we played together most every night. And those were real hippies too at that time. Yeah, too. I guess that's what. Yeah. If you saw us, you would say that's what what you were. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good word. In I my was a, books. I was a college uh, student, and you know, but w- yeah. we did we did rock music, we did folk music, we did most of those things. Not so much jazz, though. I've always liked jazz.
1: But he didn't have the same like cultural moment for jazz like people in your generation generally didn't like they, they you had no. the other one the sixties one yeah. yeah the rock and roll one
0: my father uh, knew more jazz songs than I did mm-hmm. and even in his last years not so long ago he would ride around in my car and listen to my playlist from my phone and he could sing the words to those jazz nice. songs so can my <laughs> grandfather yeah.
1: yeah I'm really glad You brought this up. Thank you for bringing it up because I wanted to address it in some way, but I wasn't sure how. So, you know, on your website, half of it is yours and half of it is dedicated to your late father. Is that correct? That's right. And did you set that all up and and you wrote both sides of the website, so to speak?
0: I had my website, Bayless.ca with all mine, and it was basically about... Bass. (laughs) Bass. <laughs> Basically <laughs> yeah, bass. Yeah. There you go. And my bands and some, uh, some samples of music. You've, you've been there and you've seen it in pictures and this and that. Then my father passed away April 2020 Yeah, at age 95. Wow. And of course, that's pandemic and I couldn't go down and we haven't been able to, yeah. to honor him with a celebration of life yet. But uh, that will come. So, what could could we do? Well, we could make a website, and we could call on people to say what they had to say on the website. So, we did that, and so I wrote a fair bit of it, and um, my brother wrote, and my sister wrote, and then other good friends wrote tributes and things, and uh, that's how we put it together. And my son is good at making uh, web pages, so he put it all together with photos and...
1: That's good. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really touching. It's really nicely done. And I, I did want to ask you about it because it does tell you a lot about him if you read that side. And I, I did yeah. check it out. and But it doesn't talk about music because there was so much else to talk about. So I left it being curious about where music fit into his life.
0: Oh, my father's life. Yeah. Well, he spent the last years of his life in uh, a nursing home. He had, he had Alzheimer's, and he lost his balance, so he couldn't walk. He was known through that nursing home for his singing. Really? <laughs> he, he would never have said that he was a musician. None of us would have said that he was a musician, but he had pretty good sense of tune, and he loved to sing in church, and that's what he would do. He would sing hymns, and he'd wheel around in his wheelchair, and he, didn't, he was unabashed Well, Alzheimer's does that to you, right? (laughs) You lose your inhibitions, for better and for worse. So he would sing at the top of his lungs. And there were times when I would wheel him in his wheelchair out. In the town of Sonoma, there's some beautiful, beautiful restaurants. And so I'd take him out to a really nice restaurant. And he would break into song. (laughs) 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 This quiet, low-lit. So, yeah, he could sing. And it was mostly, you know, hymns. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And
1: you mentioned that he knows the words to the jazz standards. Yeah. Yeah. Because he and his generation would have had the same kind of cultural moment with that stuff as you guys did with the rock and roll and pop music of the 60s and specifically with the Beatles. Yeah.
0: It was, uh, yeah, Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah. Thank you for
1: for sharing that because I was curious about it and how it passed down. And you did say that everybody in your family is musical to some extent.
0: My mother was the musician in my family of origin. Yeah. And then. then i took up the violin my brother took up the french horn yeah
1: so you said that um your dad wouldn't have considered himself a musician no. but like so if everybody plays who among you does like you do but who else does does anybody else consider themselves a musician
0: among my family origin? or your kids or my yeah. well in my present yeah. family we're all musicians
1: you do all say that you are okay nice yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: my eldest daughter julia taught she trained as a as a violin teacher, and she taught Suzuki violin uh That's another thing that happened in our house this is a while ago. She had um a gap year between her uh, bachelor's degree and her master's degree, and she spent that gap year living with us and teaching violin. Came home from home. Julia played in a folk combo for quite a while, but not jazz yeah, no I'm the one who does jazz. <laughs> I'm also the one who does jazz. So we have something we have a lot in common. And, yeah, but of course the classical background is is so valuable, you know. Having played in the orchestra for, for all mm-hmm. those years. Yeah. And just being reading music all my life.
1: There's a lot that gets easier because you have that background, you know, when you go on and learn other stuff. Yes. You you're prepared for some things that somebody if I come in from being self-taught the whole time, or if anybody comes in new, like they don't, there's there's some hard things there that you're more acclimatized to, right? So what what were the hard parts for you in the last five or ten years? What are the hardest
0: parts? I love playing in a combo, and I love people to call tunes, and I I'll just give me a tune and I'll play it.
1: You want somebody else to be calling the tunes, and you're I, right, I, you're right. I'm, there, a, ready to I'm go. a
0: side man, yeah. um, and I struggle. Uh, playing alone, uh, which is what yeah. you got to do. You got to practice, and uh, it's hard for. I mean, when I what I like to do when I practice is I uh, pull up a uh, pull up a chart and and play a song with um, with iReal Pro, uh, yeah. uh, doing with some kind of piano automatic piano accompaniment. And, and drums in the background, and I'll just go through the songbook. But that's really, as my wife points out to me, that's not uh, practicing. Practicing oh. is your scales and your arpeggios oh. and uh, all that hard stuff that isn't as much fun. So I, I struggle to get myself to do that. And I know, you know, to play in tune, you got to play every day and you got to play all over your fingerboard. Yeah, uh, and that's what Jody
1: play. says. Right, It's like the two main things are you yeah. play in tune with a good sound. Right.
0: You. She. She likes to say, "What is it?" She say it's a word when you hit a note and it's really right. And it rings. Out. It's like a resonance kind of thing? She says it pops. That's what she says. Oh, okay. I don't that. nice. <laughs> it pops. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you got to do. Every note should be that way. But the only way you can play that way is to do your scales in all keys every single day. And you do them right. double scales right up to the end of your fingerboard. And okay, I do that. But I don't do it as much as I would like to do the grunt work. <laughs> <laughs> so gotcha. that's the hard part.
1: Oh yeah, that's the hardest part for me for sure. That's the part I've had the least training in and that's what I would attack, you know, once I figure out where music lessons are going to fit back into my life is I'm I'm getting on the bow and that's going to be that's going to be a priority. It's
0: interesting how playing arco, that is with the bow, I find it requires a lot more strength in the left hand. Yeah. I uh, you know, you're playing the bow with your right you hand. You have to sustain the note. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it's, uh, building up those muscles and, yeah, the grunt work is hard for me because I, you know, I play, playfully play. (laughs) It's for fun. (laughs) Totally. When... Does it work out the best
1: for you to actually attack that? Like, What what happens and when when do you actually feel the most motivated to go and do that stuff?
0: You mean what time in the day? <laughs> it could be that
1: or uh, it could be the set of circumstances like if you come home after... If I'm good, alone. Okay, if you have a lot of time. And I
0: tend to get to it later at night. I'm a night person and mm-hmm. Lorraine, my wife, is a morning person. And so there is some time sort of between 8 and midnight. When she's sleeping, and in a, it's a whole other part of the house, and she says it doesn't bother her that I practice, oh. and I get into it. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it tends to be late. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes after everything else is finished, even like tonight we'll have dinner and everybody will stay around until 9.30, and then I might be practicing at 10.
1: Wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is, I could never do that. I'm a morning person.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I couldn't do it.
1: Well... Jonathan, thanks so much for coming here into my music room. You've covered a lot of ground and I feel like I know you so much better now. And I'm looking forward to following what you do. And I'll sign off just with anything you want to throw at me here. I'm, I'm going to ask, you've had this learning journey so far. What's something about it for which you're the most thankful?
0: Thank you so much. Also, I return the thanks it's always an honor to have people ask you questions, about, especially about yourself. <laughs> um, what's the thing? Um, I want to be as good a bassist as I can possibly be. It gives me great, great joy to play the instrument. The joy multiplies when I'm playing with others. And then it multiplies again exponentially when people are listening. And if they start to dance, that's the pinnacle. Totally. <laughs> So I had a good time when they danced in the street in front of my house. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, next time you do that, I'll make sure I don't forget to join the dance floor then. (laughs) Okay.
0: Okay. It'll be good.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Rhythm Changes podcast. If you haven't followed the feed yet, make sure you do. And think about your friends who might enjoy listening too. Tell them to search for the Rhythm Changes podcast, wherever they get their podcasts. If you want more from us, visit our website, rhythmchanges.ca, or follow at Churnoff Music on Twitter. That's me. The Rhythm Changes podcast is a Churnoff Music production.